Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. State Treasurer Eric Russell's election was an historic moment in Connecticut, but also for the nation. Last year, he became the first openly gay black person elected to statewide office in the history of the United States. But Russell steps into that role during a time of challenge. A Connecticut Mirror article from last month detailed opposition to the state's baby bonds program. It says that the governor's office has, quote, derailed its launch. The program looks to address generational poverty by setting aside funds for babies born into lower income families that can later be used for opportunities like higher education, buying a home, or starting a business. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we look into Connecticut's finances, including the baby bonds program. Now, this episode was recorded before Governor Lamont's budget address on February 8th. Later, we'll hear from Emily Byrne. She's executive director of Connecticut Voices for Children. It's an advocacy group researching policies that affect families and children. But first, Eric Russell is Connecticut State Treasurer. Eric, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you, Kalila. So happy to be here. Before we get into details of some of the priorities that you have and that the state has, let me ask you this very basic question. What does the state treasurer do for Connecticut? <laughs> so it's it's a very broad role, um, actually, and, and covers quite a bit. But um, one of the main divisions is managing our pension funds. So ultimately protecting our state and municipal employees and teachers and retirees and the pensions that they've paid into, um, making our investments responsibly so that we're growing our pension funds. Uh, the treasurer is also responsible for all of our debt management. So all of our bonding that funds schools and transportation infrastructure and childcare facilities across the state. Um, all of our cash that flows in and out of the state is managed by the treasurer's office, as well as programs like uh, the unclaimed property program and CHET, the state's 529 uh, college savings program. So there's so many roles that kind of uh, off encompass the the office of the treasurer. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about making sure that we are fiscally responsible as a state, that we are fiscally sound um, and that we're saving taxpayers dollars. You mentioned a number of programs that are fairly standard for the state treasurer and that most residents of the state would be familiar with. But I want to talk about a program that is fairly new, but is also now raising lots of questions about its future, and that is the Baby Bonds Program. So for our listeners who may not be familiar, it was a plan um, under your predecessor launching it to invest money for Connecticut residents who may be born into poverty or to difficult circumstances to help use that money for certain purposes that could help them advance. There is now a question about whether that program will fully launch, whether the governor is supportive of that. And so you inherit all of that background. What's your stance on the baby bonds program and its future for the state? Sure. And I appreciate that, that question. Uh, I'm very supportive of the baby bonds program. Um, I think it's programs like this are actually integral to our 
uh, long term as a state and really, uh, again, not only making sure that we're fiscally sound right now, but that we're also making investments in our long term future um, and providing an opportunity for communities to lift themselves up. And so I think, again, the baby bond program. So this thirty two hundred dollars that would be invested per child and would grow over the life of that child for um, investments and really about it's really about uh, the opportunity to build wealth um, in communities that have not had that opportunity. Um, but, you know, we are, are fully supportive. We've been working very closely with the governor's office. Uh, we've been meeting with agencies like uh, DSS, uh, sitting down with members of the legislature, really to, to focus on uh, the implementation and funding of this program, uh, which, as you mentioned, was already signed um, into law back in 2021. Uh, things are going really well. We're very optimistic about being able to get this done. Um, and we look forward to working with uh, all of the stakeholders and parties involved uh, to make this a reality. This program is also part of a national conversation about how to overcome decades and in some cases centuries of inequality mm -hmm. by making this investment in the lives of young people and children in our state. One of the scholars who has championed this proposal has been Professor Derek Hamilton, economist from the New School, and I know that you recently met with him. How is Connecticut's plan aligning with this national conversation? And is this a way for the state to really be a leader in addressing income inequality and promote wealth and development for young people? Absolutely. And, and not only uh, is it in alignment with what is happening in the conversations nationally, uh, we are really leading the charge. We were the first state in the country to pass uh, legislation around baby bonds um, as you mentioned, Dr. Hamilton really created this framework and structure for the baby bonds program. Um, and it was talked about on the national level as well. This was part of Senator Booker's platform when he ran for president. But since Connecticut has passed this legislation, we've seen other states really jump on board and are all looking to implement similar policies and programs. Uh, Massachusetts is working on something. We've seen that Governor Moore uh, in running for a governor in Maryland uh, had this as a, a very significant part of his platform, California, Washington. So, you know, Connecticut is really lead, leading the charge. And I think uh, it makes sense. We've led the charge in so many other ways in Connecticut in terms of uh, moving the needle. But I also think it's important in Connecticut um, simply out of necessity. Uh, we are one of the wealthiest states in the country, uh, but we ha also have one of the largest wealth gaps in the country. And um, this is a huge opportunity for us to address uh, goals that I think align with everyone's priorities of, about growth and equity, um, but also about economic growth um, in our state. And we know that by lifting, uh, providing opportunities to lift all of our communities up is ultimately going to better the state as a whole. You're offering what sounds like an holistic approach to this growth and to this opportunity that's guided by the history of our state, but is really forward thinking. And one of the other ways that you've talked about this on the campaign trail, and now that you're in office, is about ESG investing or environmental, social and governance investing that really has an ethical approach to making sure that there are certain guidelines related to investments and commitments and a way to put that forth as not seeing growth as in opposition to ethical investment, but really a necessity. How do you think that this will 
align with Connecticut's view? And what's the threshold for deciding whether a company is ethical enough to receive investment from the state? That's a great question. It's been really interesting because ESG has become this very hot button uh, topic and term. And I think part of that is because it's been used as a wedge issue across the country. And you've seen more conservative states and treasurers um, really use this as a way to say we should not be focused on anything related to ESG or somehow that's harming the states that um, some of these treasurers are coming from. And the reality is that ESG is simply a, uh, are factors in mitigating risk when making investments. And they have that these factors have been analyzed uh, for decades in investment uh, making. And it is just recently, I think, that it's become this very, very kind of more significant wedge issue. The reality is it would be irresponsible for me as a fiduciary making investment decisions to not factor in um, how environmental issues and governance issues may impact uh, the companies and, and businesses that we're investing in because um, we know that these things are all critical to the success of companies long term. And so uh, I'm very much committed to making sure that in our due diligence process, we are evaluating these risk factors. Um, the goal at the end of the day is to maximize returns for our pensioners and to make sure that we are growing our pension funds. But I think there are opportunities, um, again, analyzing these things from a risk perspective, but then also making sure we're using our positions as shareholders and that we're leveraging our dollars to uh, encourage good behavior uh, with the companies that we're investing in. By the time this episode airs, Governor Lamont will likely have presented his biennial budget. And many people are looking forward to seeing what that budget will entail and how it aligns with a vision for the state going forward. Talk to us about what you're looking for in that budget and how it may shape your priorities in your first year of office. So uh, the governor and I uh, have no doubt are very much in line in making sure that our that we have budgetary discipline built into um, our structure. And I think we've seen such an incredible turnaround in terms of the overall fiscal health of the state over the last several years um, under the leadership of the governor, uh, in large part because of the uh, budgetary kind of mechanisms that were built in in 2017. Uh, around the volati volatility cap, the uh, uh, revenue cap, ultimately making sure that we have sound fiscal policy as a state. And I fully expect that uh, those restraints are going to continue um, in some form and will be in the governor's budget proposal, which I'm very much supportive of. Um, additionally, we need to make sure that we are, again, so we have fiscal health of the state, which is critical, uh, and we've seen that progress. We also need to make sure we're investing in people. And this has been a very difficult time for so many families, so many working families across our state, um, folks in communities like the one that I grew up in, who are uh, dealing with inflation and are having conversations about how to put food on the table and make sure that they're paying their bills and, and dealing with uh, costs being increased. And so I, needed, I think it's really important that we strike that balance between uh, our overall fiscal health, continuing to pay down our unfunded pension liabilities, investing in our future, 
uh, but also providing that relief and support uh, for families across the state. And I'm, I'm very confident that, you know, between the governor's budget and uh, priorities of, of the legislature, that we will uh, be able to accomplish that. Let's talk about some of those priorities moving forward. And for many people, um, one of the priorities for the state is really addressing debt management. Connecticut has made tremendous progress in paying off its debt. It's recently had an upgrading in its credit rating, but the state is still holding a lot of debt. And some people wonder whether that can be manageable. What's your role in that? And what do you see as a way forward for Connecticut to still make the kinds of investments and commitments that can help people have financial security in our state while still thinking about the long-term impact of some of those commitments? Absolutely. And we we have made a a ton of progress in terms of our uh, managing our debt and just our overall fiscal health. Um, One thing that is, it's always interesting We've, we've actually had five upgrades to our bond ratings over the last several years, and it is uh, unprecedented. We've never been in that situation. Again, I think so much of it, if you look at the reasoning behind it, it is because, one, we actually have been issuing significantly less debt than we have historically. Um, but I think more importantly, it's again, it's these commitments. We have a full rainy day fund of, of nearly three and a half billion dollars. Uh, we've paid down nearly $6 billion in additional contributions to our unfunded pension liability. So not ones that have been required, um, you know, that again, using surplus revenues to do that. Um, But it's really been that very conscious commitment to addressing our long-term fiscal health that that has turned our our credit rating around. The other thing that I will tell you in terms of the state holding debt is the numbers are a little bit skewed uh, compared to other states. And in a large part piece of that is because we don't have a functioning county form of government. Whereas in many other states, uh, the state carries less debt because counties carry debt as well. Whereas here we're doing everything kind of on a municipal level and then state level. Um, so, you know, I, I think in terms of addressing these issues, it's really about, again, this long-term commitment. It's about thinking bigger picture. It's about being committed to having uh mechanisms and structures in place to address our long-term fiscal health, while again, I think still investing in ways that are going to grow our economy, that are going to lift people up uh, and provide um, economic opportunity. That was Connecticut State Treasurer Eric Russell. When we return, Russell talks about being the first openly gay Black official elected to statewide office in the history of the United States. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. 
Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire Therapy surgeries. If you tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're talking to Connecticut State Treasurer Eric Russell. During our conversation, I thought about one of the campaign ads from Russell's bid last year. My story begins here, a working class kid counting change at my parents' store. I never imagined then that one day I'd graduate college and end up here, partner at a law firm, helping cities manage their money and investments. Financial literacy has long been a priority for Russell. And I asked him why it's so critical to teach young people about money. I appreciate that question. It's, um, I think it's important to me because people don't see the opportunities that they, I, I guess, can't see represented in front of them. And um, as you know, in, in knowing my parents, um, I grew up inner city, New Haven, um, didn't, I wasn't around lawyers growing up. I wasn't around professionals. I didn't ever see myself working in a corporate or office setting. I didn't know that those things were necessarily attainable. Uh, and I know I was so fortunate to have two parents who worked incredibly hard to provide me better opportunities than they had. Um, but I also know that so many of the people around me growing up didn't have that leg up that I did. And uh, I know how different of a place I'm in than so many of the people that um, I grew up with and how easy it would have been for me to, again, not have these opportunities. And so uh, for me, it was always there was this commitment to want to give back to communities like the one I grew up in, uh, to be a, a resource and an example of the opportunities that are out there so that everyone knows that regardless of where you're coming from or what your background is, um, that there isn't anything that you can't chase or do. And um, it was also important to me. I had so many mentors along the way that really made sure that I was in a position to succeed and have opportunities I couldn't imagine. Uh, it's only right for me to, to try to help bring people along with me. And I think that that's what community is all about. Um, it's about making sure that uh, you know we're, we're keeping each other in mind and, and helping to lift each other up. So um, I think that's always what's driven me. I, again, look at how hard my parents have worked. Uh, there's never been an excuse for me uh, not to, to be working hard and to uh, be looking for ways to give back to the community. So. so you mentioned your parents, and in the interest of full disclosure, uh, your mom is one of my most favorite people in the entire <laughs> world, um, and, and she knows that well. And I was struck in watching you being sworn into office as you gave your speech and you mentioned your parents, you really got emotional thinking about them. What was it in that moment that, you know, struck you of what it meant for your parents, but even their own journey and own experience, you mentioned their hard work as storekeepers and, and community people, but even their own journey as a couple, mm -hmm. I imagine was, wow, this is possible. I'm living this American dream that perhaps they couldn't have imagined, but made possible. What is it about your parents and their background that makes this particularly significant as an accomplishment? 
I think, so it's, as you mentioned, it was knowing what it meant to them, uh, being there and kind of seeing uh, this take place as, as something I know that they never could have fathomed uh, with me growing up. And, you know, I look at my father who has always been my biggest, you know, mentor and role model. Uh, he'll be 81 this year. I grew up in the South with nothing. Um, and they, my parents, they met in Germany, landed in New Haven uh, in large part because they didn't want to move back South being an interracial couple at the time. And again, starting with nothing, just worked around the clock to make ends meet and provide better opportunities for my siblings and I. And so I, I think it hit me uh, thinking about my father watching this uh, the life that he's lived, the things that he's been through and experienced um, to see this. I know how much it meant to him, which I think, you know, and my mother, who has always just been my biggest uh, uh, champion and supporter, uh, you know, it's it was a, a I thought it was only right to uh, pay homage to them and what they've uh, sacrificed for me to be here. So, um, you know, it's proud parents are, are the best. Um, and I'm, you know, just really fortunate. You are the first in your family to graduate from college. You have been committed to creating pathways and opportunities for other young people, not just from the New Haven area, but really across the state to have that opportunity to have a way to acknowledge the hard work of their parents and those who went before them, but to also create a future for themselves. In your role as treasurer and the platform that that allows you, do things like college affordability and accessibility come up in the ways that the state can make that kind of investment of growing and nurturing our own and hopefully keeping people here so we benefit from all of that talent that is not just in some young people, but in all young people. Absolutely. It, and I think this is what comes, we've talked about the role of treasure and some of the day-to-day -day responsibilities. At the end of the day, uh, I feel as I have an obligation as a constitutional officer who's been put in this office by residents of the state of Connecticut to use this platform um, to advocate for people and to advocate for communities that, uh, all of our communities, but especially for those that have been marginalized and that I think I understand in a different way than what is often represented in politics. And so it's why I'm so committed to things like financial literacy, um, making sure that we, you know, we, we don't always talk about finances and uh, fiscal health uh, for folks growing up, but particularly in some communities that have been marginalized or that don't have capital or resources or assets to talk about. Um, and so I, I think there's there's several things that I'm looking into in this, whether it be priorities like baby bonds or financial literacy, um, or just you know connecting communities to resources. These are all things that uh, I'm very committed to using my platform uh, to speak on and advocate for. You mentioned this interest in supporting people in access to assets and to capital, and your office recently celebrated National Unclaimed Property Day. Let me ask you a really basic question here. How do people determine if they have unclaimed property or in, and entitled to reclaiming that property? What should people do? So everyone should go on to, uh, there's two websites that I would recommend. There's CT Big List, which is the state unclaimed property website. So you go on and you can punch in your name 
and we'll determine if there is any if there are any assets that the state is holding uh, that you are entitled to. The other website is missingmoney.com, which is a website that combine that several states opted into. So you can determine if there is any unclaimed property um, across the country that you may be entitled to. I hope people are paying attention and we'll include links to that on our website as well so they can claim their property. I want to go back a moment to the day of inauguration with all of the emotions, all of the joy, all of the excitement that sadly ended in tragedy. And that was the Mm. loss of state representative Quentin Q. Williams at the age of 39. He not only was your colleague in terms of of politics and this cadre of young committed um, elected officials and those who are aspiring to public service. You were also members of the same fraternity. What's the legacy that Representative Williams leaves and that you and others are championing to continue going forward? Yeah, so it was a very, very um, difficult first day in office, I'll tell you that. as you mentioned, Q and I were very close and actually entered our fraternity together. Um, but Q was just a light and, you know, he was a, a ball of energy um, and such a fierce advocate for Connecticut and for residents in Connecticut and for uh, marginalized communities in Connecticut. And, you know, it's really a loss for our state in such a huge way. Um, but I think what Q would want is that we shepherd a lot of this energy into action. Um, Q focused on building more affordable housing in Connecticut and lifting up communities with the least and investing in education and making sure that all of our children are are coming out of school with opportunities. Um, He cared about equity. And as we're talking about programs like Baby Bonds, as we're talking about programs that are meant to provide more equity and shift this conversation in Connecticut, um, really focusing on all of our residents. That's what Q has always cared about. And so, you know, I think I'm charged, as I think so many people who are close to Q uh, are charged with the idea of let's go do the work that Q would want us to do um, and make sure that we are treating people with respect, right, that we are uh, pushing policy that is going to help all of our residents in Connecticut. Um, and, you know, and that we're taking care of each other. I think one of the, you know, really startling thing for people is this was that reminder um, of what's really important and uh, how fragile everything is. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's a, a real opportunity for us to reset and kind of keep that in mind, I think particularly heading into this really important session. I think about all of the incivility that too often dominates politics in our country and even across our state. And to be reminded of that light, to be reminded of the opportunity that we have every day to build legacy and create and inspire other people, it's really a conviction to move forward. And one of the ways that your legacy, what are you, a month into office, that your legacy is already building hope and possibility for people is that you are the first openly gay black person elected to statewide office in the entire country, in the history of this country. And you are also one of the youngest statewide elected officials in this country. 
What does that mean for you and how you carry out the mission and vision of the work that you're doing? It's humbling, honestly. I was not aware that um, I would be the first when I was going through the campaign. I received the endorsement uh, of an organization called the Victory Fund that tracks a lot of this data historically. Uh, and they made me aware of this, which uh, really, you know, it, it took me aback for a minute. Um, but I'm honored. I'm honored to represent communities that I belong to um, in this way. I think what I'm more excited about is for us to be celebrating the day when this is not, uh, we're not talking about first. And we have a more reflective government um, of all of our communities across the country. Um, but I, I don't take it lightly. And I think where the responsibility comes is that, again, I'm using this platform and position uh, to advocate for communities, to educate uh, folks about our communities so that we are better represented and we have uh, a, a better understanding of our communities as a whole. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited. I, like I said, it's not lost on me the significance of it, but I'm, I want to work every day to make sure that there are uh, more to come after me uh, from from communities that are underrepresented. I believe Kamala Harris said when she was uh, inaugurated as vice president, she may be the first, but certainly will not be the last. Mm -hmm. Eric Russell is Connecticut State Treasurer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So great to see you. Coming up, the executive director of Connecticut Voices for Children. She'll talk about what she hopes to see in the state's new budget. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about Connecticut's finances and what we should look for in the new budget. This episode was recorded before Governor Lamont's budget address on February 8th. Our next guest is Emily Byrne. She's executive director of Connecticut Voices for Children. It's a research-based advocacy organization. She joined to talk about their policy priorities for this legislative session. Emily, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to talk about some of the legislative priorities for your organization this session. You are a research-based advocacy organization, and you really dig into the intersection of policy and practice when it comes to the fate of children and, to some extent, families in our state. One of the key policy areas that's up for discussion this session relates to baby bonds and the potential to really invest in young people and, and children in our state. Why do you think that the baby bonds program could really help address income inequality in the state and be a real investment in children here in Connecticut? Yeah, um, you know, Connecticut baby bonds um, is is really, I would argue, the only policy on state record uh, to substantially uh, advance wealth equity. Um, and this matters in our fight for economic justice. Um, you know, we know that the income and wealth divides in Connecticut are exceptionally wide. Uh, the median uh, white household pre-tax income is $93,300 compared to $58,600 for black households and $54,800 for Hispanic um, and Latina households. 
21% of Connecticut households have zero or negative net worth. For Black households, it's more than 35%. Uh, and more than 51% of Hispanic and Latina households have zero uh, or negative net worth. And so I say all this to say, uh, you know, that while there are a number of very good uh, policies that address income and wage equity, um, which are super important, we're fighting for, for many of them, wealth equity is equally important to address economic justice. Uh, and as the data that I just mentioned speak to, um, there is no racial justice without economic justice. On paper, it makes perfect sense that you invest in children from the time of their birth, you invest in their potential, you show your commitment to overcoming that wealth inequality and to make an affirmative statement, recognizing the past and really investing in the future. And in spite of how rational and logical that may sound to some people, we both know that there have been significant delays to really launching that program. What do you make of those delays? And what does it mean for the future of not just the baby bonds program in particular, but perhaps the state's commitment to addressing wealth inequality? Um, you know, when Connecticut baby bonds was enacted, um, we certainly were excited uh, about the prospect of, of advancing wealth equity, um, but we were also, you know, very excited about the potential this policy has uh, to help a new generation of Connecticut residents see government as a force for good. Um, so I think it's worth breaking these two ideas down a little. Um, you know, one of the things that the pandemic did was show uh, in a very sobering way how uh, critical wealth is, right? We saw how wealth allowed um, some families to endure the financial shock from having lost a job or having to pay unexpected medical expenses. Um, beyond the context of the pandemic, we know that wealth provides a considerable head start in life for some children, right? Some families are able to leverage their wealth to afford, um, you know, high quality private school uh, or send their children to college with little or no uh, student loans um, or help their children to put a down payment on a on a first home, which in turn helps that family build generational wealth. The other less obvious benefit of this policy is that it shows Connecticut residents how the current class of electeds can move beyond politics uh, to advance equitable policies and safeguard the future of our state uh, and its residents even if it means that everyone in office now uh, may be long gone when the beneficiaries are able to access this capital. Um, and that's government and politics uh, at their best. Uh, it's a shame that some folks uh, don't understand the transformational uh, magnitude of this policy, knowing what we know about wealth. Um, and the cynic in me would say that this is intentional. Uh, we know that wealth is indicative of history, uh, we know wealth is indicative of power, and we know that wealth has the potential uh, to change those things as well, right? Equality requires a redistribution of wealth and power. Um, and so it's possible that knowing these things can help us understand why some people may be against um, this policy, but I really hope uh, that we can move beyond the fear uh, to help everyone get to a place of, of true freedom, which is the heart of Connecticut Baby Bonds. Your organization has also been very supportive of efforts to invest in families' well-being and to give families a chance 
to realize the hard work, the contributions that they've made and overcome some of the insecurity and vulnerability that many middle-class, lower-income families face in the state. And one of the ways that you've proposed that is by supporting a permanent child tax credit. How would that work to address some of the concerns that you have or priorities that your organization has espoused? And why do you think it's important as Connecticut seeks to, as you say, address some of those historical forces while making forward thinking commitments? Yeah, so um, we are uh, a Connecticut Voices for Children. We're for policies that put uh, more money in the pockets of hardworking families. Uh, and we believe that a permanent Connecticut child tax credit uh, is one of those policies. Um, we've been advocating for a Connecticut CTC since 2020 um, because it's proven uh, to ensure family economic security. Um, Connecticut is, you know, a great state. I grew up in Connecticut. Um, that, that, uh, that said, it, it's an expensive state uh, to live in, especially for families. Uh, the data tell us that the cost of raising a child uh, in the Northeast is around $17,000 per child per year. Um, you know, housing costs are, are going through the roof, uh, pun intended, um, and the costs for food and gas are exceptionally high worldwide, uh, which makes the affordability of the state uh, that we love uh, a challenge. But we can do something about this. Uh, a refundable state level uh, CTC could support over 600,000 children, uh, including up to about 95,000 children living in poverty. Uh, and for a high cost of living state like Connecticut, um, that has no exemption, reduction, or credit to adjust for family size or childcare expenses, uh, we believe a permanent state child tax credit makes good sense. Um, you know, I know that some people are calling for a middle-class tax cut uh, in the form of a new bracket, and we're supportive of this too. Uh, and so quite frankly, this would act in a similar way to indexing the income tax to inflation, uh, which is a policy we've proposed in the past. But more to the point, a permanent uh, Connecticut child tax credit um, is, we believe, more effective for children than other tax cuts because it specifically targets families, um, families that are low income and families that are middle income. This is an important legislative session in Connecticut. Over 200 bills uh, being considered by the legislature. And frankly, Emily, there is no one policy area that does not affect the quality of life of children in our state. And yet somehow your organization and others still have to prioritize where you focus in. What are the key legislative priorities or policy priorities for your constituents this session? And what are you hoping really takes force in terms of what's being uh, responded to and prioritized? Our state's budget is a statement of our values. And at uh, Connecticut Voices for Children, we want children and families uh, to feel and see through policy and dollars that they matter, uh, right? Not, not just a tagline. Um, so we have four major goals for this biennium budget, uh, to put more money in the pockets of hardworking families, build a strong and diverse workforce, create more affordable housing uh, in every town across the state, and ensure every zip code has safe uh, and healthy communities. Um, our strategies to, to guarantee safe and healthy communities include uh, more transparency of the MOUs between school districts and police departments, uh, our strategies to ensure more affordable housing options uh, for everyone uh, in every town include stronger renter protections 
uh, and more funding and policies that would allow for uh, the development of deeply affordable housing. Um, our strategies to create a stronger workforce uh, include more funding for public sector jobs and universal access to high quality early care so that providers are paid uh, what they deserve and parents can get back to work. Um, and last but certainly not least, uh, our strategies to put more money in the pockets of hardworking families include uh, creating a permit child, uh, Connecticut child tax credit that we just talked about, expanding the Connecticut Earnicum uh, tax credit, expanding the property tax credit, uh, and funding the Connecticut baby bonds. These are critical priorities for so many people across the state. And I want to point out that what you just mentioned isn't just priority for children and families in urban areas or in particular areas of the state. It's really every town and every city can be affected by this. And Emily, you have experience leading and governing at every level, you know, whether it's local government, international experience of how these things come together. And it also means that you have a particular insight into leading during difficult times. We are at the start of Governor Lamont's second term in office, which will help set how many of these priorities can move forward and have the support of the state to do it. And I'm curious, your thoughts on Governor Lamont's first term and how that may shape your expectations or your demands for his second term in office. You know, I think uh, the governor did a very good job his first term in leading the state through um, an unprecedented time. Um, as we know, because we all lived through it, uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic were at the time, um, you know, novel, not just in terms of health and science, uh, but for governance uh, and management as well. Um, and so it, it could have really been a disaster, but it wasn't. And, and I give Governor Lamont a lot of credit for this. You know, um, Connecticut has aptly been nicknamed the land of steady habits. The norm is that it takes many years for change to come about. And maybe this is a silver lining from the pandemic. Uh, the last couple of legislative sessions and these fall within the governor's first term, we've really bucked our nickname in that the state has enacted some transformational policies in a very short uh, period of time. We saw through words and actions, uh, not only an acknowledgement of Connecticut's uh, vast income and wealth inequality, but also an acknowledgement that if our goal is for all families uh, in the state to be able to thrive, we have to advance equitable policies and resource them appropriately. Um, and so these last two years have shown that the legislature can pass big, bold, progressive policies, and the governor is willing to enact them when they want to. Um, you know, the expansion of the state earned income tax credit and hero pay are good examples of this. The Connecticut child tax rebate and um, sizable investment in child care um, are other good examples. Baby bonds uh, is a great example. Um, and, uh, you know, many families across the state still need uh, help to make life a, a little more uh, affordable. Um, you know, uh, the governor, as you said, will be releasing his full budget on February 8th. And as always, we'll be looking very closely at it. Um, I think from the policy announcements to date, we'll likely see a budget that tries to give a little bit to everyone. Um, but let's be honest, if you cut the pie up into equal pieces, folks will definitely be helped. 
but it's not equitable in that we're reducing inequality. Um, instead, we're just moving the baseline. Um, you know, as an organization, we want children and families in Connecticut to be able to thrive, not just survive. Uh, and this requires vision uh, and courageous action. Um, I believe we're in a moment that can define Connecticut as a compassionate, uh, equitable state that cares for all residents, irrespective of whether or not you live in a suburb or city. Um, I think big investments yield big returns. Uh, that said, uh, I'm a realist um, and understand that it may be more prudent to pace ourselves. Uh, but the bottom line is that uh, I believe there's a roadmap that we can that can be drawn now um, that that gets us to the future that we want. When you think about the potential of this budget, when you think about the priorities for your organization and really for the children of this state, are you hopeful? about what could come out of that. And, and let me just give you one example. The governor's office has already announced a plan to increase the state's earned income tax credit. And some people have said, you know, that is a movement toward the kinds of things that you're talking about. While others have said that may be an incremental step, but may not get us to where we need to be. Are you hopeful? Are you optimistic? Or are you, you know, sort of guarded in what we may possibly see coming out of it? So we're, you know, we're deeply supportive of the patchwork of policies that eradicate poverty and advance income and wealth equity. Um, Voices has been fighting for uh, a state earned income tax credit for more than 15 years. Um, you know, our founding mothers were part of a coalition that helped get the Connecticut EITC enacted in 2011. Um, so we're really pleased that the governor's budget will include um, an expanded EITC. Um, we hope that the policy includes immigrants that file their taxes with an ITIN, uh, an individual tax identification number. Um, so we'll be looking for this when the budget is released. But ultimately, the EITC is an important policy that uh, will help our state's lowest income workers, um, which they need. And so this is a good thing. Do I think that, um, you know, transformational uh, policies like the expansion of a Connecticut EITC um, will be included in the budget. I think it's TBD. Your organization is called Connecticut Voices for Children. But one of the unique elements of the work that you do is that it really centers and listens to the voices of children. What are you hearing from young people across the state that you work with and not just setting these priorities, but seeing how they are really being affected in the day to day by, you know, the things that are happening that have shaped the priorities that you put forth? What are you hearing from young people? People are just exhausted from the last couple of years, um, but also uh, young people in particular uh, have been living their lives <laughs> exhausted. Young people they're seeing the world um, through a lens of two recessions, um, uh, through uh, you know, a worldwide pandemic, um, through the possibility of living in an uninhabitable earth. It feels pretty bleak, uh, quite frankly. And the incredible piece of this is that a lot of young people still hold uh, hope for change to happen within their lifetime. You are leading during a time of tremendous challenge, but also tremendous opportunity and a realization that, you know, with all of the history, the, the intentional 
overlooking of many communities. This is really a time to affirm those voices, affirm those experiences, and affirm the possibility that government can be a force for good, as you say, but that the voices of people, of children, have to drive that. So my last question to you is simply this, what gives you hope in this moment? You know, it's really uh, interesting and heartening to see the justice spaces growing, um, especially with young people. Um, you know, this is something we haven't seen in, in decades. Um, I, I think there is, uh, you know, we're, in, we're feeling some growing pains, um, but the, the truth is, is that um, we're seeing folks uh, really locking arms and working toward uh, working, you know, putting justice front and center. Um, you know, I, I would say that that systems change and policy change work, whether local, state, or federal, require an array of partners uh, in different lanes working together and moving people to action. Um, you know, sometimes these are the same actions, um, and sometimes they aren't. Um, but in successful, uh, sustained efforts, the actions are always aligned. Um, and that is um, what gives me hope that in Connecticut, uh, that is, you know, that is kind of what we're seeing right now. Um, as researchers and advocates at Voices, you know, we're, we're really mindful that we need to be um, inpatient uh, uh, about injustice, uh, but patient about strategy. Um, and so our, our work focuses on powering movements, you know, with data, organizing with communities where we see a need and partnering with values aligned organizations to advance are aimed toward economic justice. And it's just a beautiful thing to see so many growing values aligned organizations. Impatient about injustice and patient about strategy. Emily Vern is executive director of Connecticut Voices for Children. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Emily Cherish, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tolarski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.